0: about sex in front of like a whole group of people. We, We very seldom call up our friends and say, hey, come on over Saturday night, let's talk about sex. Okay, we just, that's not usually how we do things. But I was doing the sex talk at the Family Life Marriage Conference, and we were talking about the need to have the sex talk with your kids, that it's incredibly important to do that if you're married and have kids. And I spontaneously just said to the audience, it was about a thousand people, I said, men, how many of you growing up had the sex talk somebody gave you the talk your dad sat down with you and uh, just kind of gave it to you 20 out of 500 men less than 20 men raised their hand there was an audible gasp from the audience so let me ask you this question men how many of you your dad sat down with you your mom sat down with you and gave you the sex talk raise your hands look around Wow, that's really good, but I bet you we're looking at maybe 25 people. Ladies, how many of you, uh, somebody sat down and had the sex talk with you, your mom or your dad? Show of hands. Yeah, it's usually higher with the women, isn't it? Now, why is that true, that it's not everybody? I think we really lack confidence. I think we lack a script. Uh, My parents didn't have the sex talk with me. Everything I learned about sex came from the collective wisdom of the high school football team... And pornography, that's where everything I learned about sex and had to be reprogrammed when I finally got married. So here's what I want to do tonight. My wife's going to join me in a little bit, but we would like to talk about the top three observations we've made having spoken at family life marriage conferences for 17 years. What are the things that we've seen that we need to deal with as a culture if we're really to have productive, healthy sex lives? So here are our top three observations. First, I think we have underestimated the power of the spoken word. If this is the most sexualized age in the history of humanity, we today, via technology, are speaking more words than ever before in the history of humanity. I think it's ironic that in a time in which there's more communication than there's ever been before, we are not appreciating the power of our spoken words. Consider some of these statistics. Facebook has over a billion active users worldwide and is available in more than 70 languages. If Facebook were a country, it would be the third largest in the world, only lagging behind China and India. Today, users on Twitter are sending over 2 million tweets per day, or 2,315 a second. YouTube reports that over 4 billion videos are uploaded each month and that in 2011 it had more than 1 trillion views or around 140 views for every person on planet Earth. Now, just to put this in context, listen to this one. Internet communication produces enough information to fill 7 million DVDs every hour with annual consumption predictions for 2015 at 966 exabytes. Okay, now what's an exabyte? Listen to this. Uh, To put this in perspective, a study by UC Berkeley estimates that if all the words were taken, spoken by human beings, since the very beginning of humanity, and they were put into text form, it would only take up five exabytes. We are producing more words than ever, but we're not appreciating the power our words have on individuals. The Bible takes a radically different view of our words. Consider some of these um, verses. Reckless words are presented as a piercing sword in the book of Proverbs. A word spoken in the wrong way can break a bone. Proverbs chapter 22, verse 15. I have three kids, and they all played baseball. Uh, my son was a pitcher, my oldest son. So we were, uh, I was throwing them balls, and he was hitting them. Uh, I had a screen right in front of me that was protecting me. Well, I took the screen and put it away, and of course my son said, Dad, one more. And like an idiot, I took one last ball and threw it to him, and he hit a line drive that hit me right in the thigh and absolutely put me down. I mean, I could not walk to the car. Book of Proverbs says, your words have the power to do exactly that. To hurt a person, not just emotionally, but physically. A person's spirit is easily crushed by a deceitful tongue. In plotting evil, a scoundrel's speech is like a scorching fire. Uh, Not only can negative words separate close friends, but a whole city can be disrupted by mockery, Proverbs 22. A gentle answer turns away wrath, 15 Proverbs 15, verse 1, and gracious words are like a honeycomb. Now, why are we talking about this? Because when we get to the Song of Solomon tonight, I want you to pay attention to how they talk to each other and how that is incredibly important, how they respect the power of words. Now, Jesus greatly respected the power of words. In the New Testament, Jesus says something that I think we hear, but we don't believe is true. Here's what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 12, verse 36. Jesus says that at the end of your life, when you're standing in front of the great white throne as a believer, Jesus is going to say to you, I'm holding you accountable for every word you've ever spoken. Every word you have ever spoken, Jesus says, I will hold you accountable for those words. Now, How many words are we talking about? study just came out comparing men and women's speech right we used to think that ladies you you uh, talked roughly 70,000 words a day and men it was roughly like 20,000 which is crazy the new study kind of blew that out of the water this is what the new study says a recent study found that women spoke daily 16,215 words a day and men were 15,669 now do the math In one year, ladies, if you're average, you will speak 5,918,475 words in one year. Men, 5,719,500 words. That's what you'll be held accountable for. That's just one year. Jesus says also, by the way, I want to isolate what he calls careless words. Careless words are the words that we say without much forethought. We would say they're throwaway words. Jesus is saying there are no throwaway words. Now why is Jesus so concerned about your language? He tells us in Matthew 12, For out of the overflow of the heart the mouth speaks. How do I know what your heart is really like? In Hebrew, heart is all of you. Your character, your mind, your emotions. How do we know what your heart is really like? Jesus says, I want you to listen to a person's words. That will tell you more about that person's heart than virtually anything else. You know, Jesus was mirroring, at the time, the the, uh, philosophers of the day that taught this. As the speech, so the life, uh, Roman philosophers used to say. So men and women, the words you use towards each other are incredibly important. We're going to later see with the Song of Solomon how they speak to each other and glean some lessons from that. But the very first thing that Noreen and I have seen after 17 years of speaking at conferences, we don't understand the power our words have on each other. The incredible power we have to lift a person up or to tear them down with our language. Uh, One of the speakers we spoke with told a story that I've remembered for years. Uh, There was a group of guy friends they would all hang out with each other. And uh, all of them got married except for one lone guy who didn't get married. Okay, so now everybody's married. They're starting to have kids. Finally, they get word that this one guy is now engaged. So they're at this get-together. This guy comes with his fiance. Now all the other friends are married and have toddlers and all that kind of stuff. Well, he comes with his fiance, walks up to the group, and he says this. He says, hey, I want to introduce you to the most beautiful woman in the world. Just so happens it's my fiance.'" Okay, now all the married guys are like, "Oh, my. All right, come on, that is," and they're all thinking it'll never last. It just you can't keep that up. Okay, so he gets married to this woman. Years go by. They've kind of lost touch with him. Finally, they're at this reunion. Now this guy comes with that woman and their three kids. So the kids walk up with her right there and one of the kids says to my friend, hey, I want to introduce you to the most beautiful woman in the world. Just so happens it's my mom. Now listen, when I heard that, I immediately grabbed my three kids and I said, come here. (laughs) The next time mom walks in a room, say, what's wrong with you guys, right? Think of a woman who has heard that her entire life. Think of a woman who's heard that her entire life. Most convicting quote I've ever heard on marriage came from a friend of ours, Floyd Green. He said this, You eventually get the spouse you deserve because you've created them. You eventually get the spouse you deserve. Why? Because you created them. Noreen and I have been married 23 years. I I have a voice in her life. If she's lacking self-confidence, I need to own that. So the words we speak can either give life, the book of Proverbs say, or they'll give death. What kind of a speaker are you when you talk to other people? Second major problem we tend to notice is that we have allowed our self-esteem to be shaped by culture. We've allowed how we feel about ourselves to be shaped by what culture has to say about us. Now, let's just get our terms in place very quickly. First, all of us have a self-concept. What is a self-concept? It's how you see yourself. It's the perceptions you have about yourself. You may think you're tall, short, funny, not funny, smart, not smart. These are all the perceptions you have about yourself. Your self-esteem is how you feel about those perceptions. For example, you might have a perception that you're quiet in public. Your self-esteem is do you feel good about that or bad about that? Now I want you to watch a very quick commercial, I love this commercial, and it's really about self-esteem. Let's watch this commercial from Audi.
1: Look at you, so dashing. Come on. Nowadays, lots of people go by themselves.
2: No they don't.
0: Hey son, have fun tonight. Because I drive a Hyundai, okay? So self-concept, how did he feel about himself? He's heading off to the prom by himself. That doesn't look good. His sister even verifies this is not cool, right? So right now his perception of himself is what? what, Reality is that he's going by himself. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? Self-esteem says it's a bad thing. Then his dad throws him car keys hey son take my car and he starts to get reactions from other people and you can see his self esteem start to rise we actually call that reflected appraisal that I reflect the appraisal you give me they also call it, psychologists call it the Michelangelo effect uh, that you literally are sculpted by culture today. Now that's a very powerful thing to realize when it comes to your sexuality. That by age six, parents hear me, by age six psychologists tell us that your children have a basic understanding of who they are in their worldview By age six. So when should you have the sex talk with them? Dennis Rainey suggests you have the sex talk starting right at about age seven or age eight. Age-appropriate, but you want them to be getting a biblical perspective to reflect, not a cultural perspective. Now, philosopher and psychologist William James says that when you go out through your life, there's actually different parts of you. You're not just one entity. There's different parts of you that are greatly impacted by individuals and by culture, and James broke it up into three different categories. First category, there is what he called the material self. Right. This is what people can see of you and you can see yourself. So for sure this is your height, for sure this is your weight, Uh, it's your abilities, disabilities, hair, lack of hair. Um, It's all of those different things that you can see about yourself. Now this is where it gets really interesting, particularly if you're a woman. Ladies, you've been done a great disservice in this culture today. I teach a class on gender. What is gender? Sex is what you're born with, born male or female. Gender is what your culture tells you is appropriately masculine, appropriately feminine. So, ladies, what kind of messages are you getting as you walk through life, right, um, about the material self, how you look? Consider some of these statistics. For the past 10 years, there's been a book, a diet book, on the New York Times bestseller nonfiction list, 40% of fourth-grade girls diet. 40%. Today, one in four college women have an eating disorder. Male and female models actually represent only 0.3% of the population. The average woman today is 5 foot 4, 140 pounds. The average model is 5 uh, 5 foot 11 inches, 115 pounds. Do you want to know what the average male model is? Uh (laughs) So I won't won't focus on that. (laughs) Hey, but here's the interesting things, ladies. So when you look at a model, you're hit with a double whammy. One, this is not a normal human being. This person is not average when it comes to average American women, right? They've spent all of their time perfecting their craft, which is diets, professional trainers. They specialize on different parts of their body. But then please understand, even when these models go to print, they're airbrushed. There was a bill going through Congress that was defeated, but it it was simply called the airbrush bill, which meant when you saw a cover of a magazine and it was airbrushed, which by the way, all of them are, there had to be an asterisk that told you it was airbrushed. At Biola, a bunch of women one day printed t-shirts that simply said, I was not airbrushed and wore it across campus, right? So ladies, understand the reality that you see today is what we call synthetic reality. It means it doesn't exist that there aren't people who even look like what you see on a daily basis. Now, I must applaud the Dove campaign for Real Beauty. They've come out and tried to challenge modern contemporary uh, standards of what beauty looks like, and you probably have all seen this on YouTube. But just for one minute, take a look at a very poignant clip. It's called Dove Evolution, about how a model has to be made uh, presentable to be on a billboard. Let's watch this. (laughs) So media scholars call that synthetic reality. It's a reality that exists but is not real. Uh, Other things that might be synthetic reality is, and we'll talk about this in a second, is sex today with no sexually transmitted diseases. Right? You watch television and what is not mentioned on prime time is the fact that often hooking up or being active sexually comes with sexually transmitted diseases. But Primetime television does not want to present that type of reality, so they create their own alternate reality. Um, now, by the way, this material self also applies to our possessions, which is really interesting when we live in such a techno-snobbery time, right? My kids openly mock my cell phone. They mock it. They say, Dad, honestly, please. Because mine doesn't launch missiles, right? Right? <laughs> My cell phone does this crazy thing, right? I can act, you can be in a different room, I can call you, it's crazy. I can even send you a text message. You could be in a different state and my message would actually get to you. But today we judge each other based on our technology, right? And we often feel bad about our technology and it can deeply impact our self-esteem. Take a look at this great T-Mobile commercial. All right, give me your phone. Oh. Here. Is this the phone you use?
2: Yeah. It's, it's sweet.
0: No. You want the charger? I don't want this. No, 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 no. It's good. It's a good phone, man. No, this is it's not a good phone. phone. This isn't even a gun. I don't. It's yeah. my hand. You take it away. Take it. I work at the car wash. I work at the car wash. You know who I am. No, I don't want the phone. I don't want the phone. Two years is too long to wait. Introducing Jump from T-Mobile. Upgrade when you want, No. Right, so our self-esteem can be deeply impacted by our possessions, right? The cars we drive, the watches we wear, the technology that we have can have a deep impact on our self-esteem. Now some of you might be thinking, okay, I think some of this is really interesting. I think I'm at the wrong talk, right? I thought this was the Song of Solomon sex talk. Oh, we're about to get to it, but only in the backdrop of these three problems will it make sense with a book that predated Aristotle is actually addressing all these three modern contemporary problems. Okay, so first major problem Noreen and I see we do not understand the power our words have on individuals. You can break a bone Or you can be a honeycomb to a person. You can speak life or you can speak death. We don't believe that and we say things... Or we don't say certain things that have deep impact on us. Second, all of you have a self-concept. All of you have it. In communication, the field that I teach... We say that your self-concept determines who you are as an individual. If you want to know the difference between confident people... And people who aren't confident... It's because of their self-esteem. It's because of their self-concept. And ladies... Growing up in a culture in which you are constantly the target of synthetic reality, somebody's going to have to counteract that, right? Okay, third major problem today. Culture takes a simplistic view of sex when sex is actually very complicated. How many of you are married, show of hands? Yeah, all of you know this, right? Before I got married, what I thought sex was like, and then when you get married. Okay, before I got married, you just, I mean, I had two of my good friends get married before I did, and I was like, oh, awesome, bro, what's it like? (laughs) And they said to me very quickly, I'll never forget this, and I didn't even believe them. I didn't believe them. They said, oh, man, you know, sex is kind of complicated. To a single guy, I was like, really, I don't... It would be. Why? What would be complicated, right? You love each other every night. You remember Mike Gehry's crazy estimates of what he was going to do? My wife laughed out loud. I didn't know how to take that. I was like, okay. Um, (laughs) When you get married, you realize that sex is a thermometer, not a thermostat, right? We tend to think, single culture that sex turns up the heat in a relationship, right? It's a thermostat. It it produces powerful heat. Just think the uh, movie The Notebook, right? They're passionate. She smacks them. Then they're passionately kissing each other. They're having this long argument in the rain. I can't think of one argument Noreen and I have had in the rain. I'd be like, honey, it's raining. Let's go inside okay (laughs) I want you okay but inside it's raining you know (laughs) when you get married you realize that sex is a thermometer it it tells you about the how the relationship is doing and we know through uh, theology psychology and philosophy that we're very complex beings We are intellectual, we're spiritual, we're emotional, we're physical. That's how God made us. But sex today, as presented in the movies and in primetime television, it's too simplistic. It doesn't take into account something Lewis Smead said. Smead says this, the customer and the prostitute can never really accomplish what they try to accomplish. And that is, you can't leave your soul outside. When you have sex, And all those statistics Mike shared last week from that book called Hooked is that something profound is happening. When you are with another person sexually active, your soul is becoming entwined with that person. Now, culture says, no, that's not true. When you have sex, it's just physical. It doesn't have to be complicated. And you can move from partner to partner to partner. Now, Now, some shows are deceptively dangerous okay in my persuasion class in grad school we learned that laughter is the first level of acceptance I want you to listen to that again laughter is the first level of acceptance so when you consider shows like modern family that's interesting to consider laughter opens the door for you to accept things so one show that is of course funny is the big bang theory of course of course it's funny but in it, you have very interesting messages. The Big Bang Theory is about a, r- a bunch of really smart people who have sex with everybody. Okay, that's the Big Bang Theory, right? Penny is, uh, is the one non-smart person who's a waitress, but she is more sexually active than anybody else, and she thinks she can just skate through life and have no complications whatsoever until one day she has a very interesting dinner with uh, two of her friends who are brilliant. And listen to this conversation. Let's watch a clip from the Big Bang Theory.
1: What about you, Penny? Do you go on many dates? Oh, uh, yeah, I wouldn't say many. A few. What's
2: your characterization of approximately a hundred and seventy one different men as a few?
1: You get 171 men.
2: Simple extrapolation. In the three years that I've known you, you were single for two. During that time, I saw 17 different suitors. If we work backwards, correcting for observation bias, and postulate an initial dating age of 15,
1: Whoa, wait, wait, wait! I did not start dating at 15.
2: I'm sorry, 16. 14. <laughs> my mistake. Now, assuming the left side of a bell curve peeking around the present, that would bring the total up to 193 men, plus or minus eight men.
1: Remarkable. Did you have sexual intercourse with all of these men?
2: No. Although that number would be fairly easy to calculate, based on the number of awkward encounters I've had with strange men leaving her apartment in the morning, plus the number of times she's returned home wearing the same clothes she wore the night before. Okay,
1: Sheldon, I think you've made your point. So
2: we multiply 193 21 men before the loss of virginity. So 172 times 0.18 gives us 30.96 sexual... Partners. <laughs> Let's ra- oh.
0: Now she says something that shocks you on primetime television She says, Penny, cultural assumptions aside How does it feel to be a slut? And it clearly bothers her Right, Because Big Bang has created a synthetic reality, right? Penny doesn't have a sexually transmitted disease. That never comes up. Though, if you want to do just purely statistics, she'd be a ripe candidate for sexually transmitted diseases that never go away. But more importantly, her soul has been compromised. If she has 34 sexual partners or 117-some dates, that stickiness that Mike talked about has been greatly compromised right? Her soul has been deeply impacted. The Big Bang Theory, as brilliant as they want to make their characters out to be, have a very simplistic view of sex. Sex is the combination of passion, companionship, spiritual intimacy. All of that makes up a vibrant sex life. We call it systems theory. You take all of those elements, right? Physical, emotional, spiritual, and you mix them together. I was a wrestler in high school, Um, And I had to cut a bunch of weight uh, because we had a new coach who made us all cut weight in high school. So somebody said you need to eat yogurt. I had never eaten a thing of yogurt in my life. So I went to lunchroom, got a thing of blueberry yogurt, right? Popped the top off, just started to eat this. It was horrible. Who said this was blueberry? A woman sitting next to me just looked at me like, you idiot, you have to stir it all together. And I was like, well, nobody said that. So I stirred it all together and I went oh, that's good, that's blueberry. God is saying this, sex is not one thing, it's actually very complex, it's a mixture of things. Okay, so with those three things in mind, we we do not fully appreciate the power of words. Second, your self-esteem is going to be shaped by somebody and usually we have to counteract what the culture is doing and third, sex is very complex, it's not thin, it's thick. Now, with that in mind, let's go to the Song of Solomon. We're going to take a look at what he says in one passage, and then Maureen's going to come up and give us the female perspective of what she says. So turn with me to chapter 7. Now, just let me remind you a little bit what Mike has already shared with us. We don't know who these two individuals are. There's different assumptions. Um, Some assume that the scene represents a girl as part of the harem of Solomon, but we don't know that for certain. We don't know for certain this is even Solomon. Some anticipate that this could be an Egyptian princess, perhaps the queen of Sheba, though most commentary settle on the fact that most likely this is a country girl and a, a, a being captivated by her husband. So with that in mind, let's read chapter 7, verses 1 to 9. And let me make this parenthetical statement. There's a great book on marriage called Love Life by Ed Wheat. In this book, Ed actually suggests that you take parts of the Song of Solomon and read them to each other if you're married. I think that's a great suggestion, but I think we'll see in a minute. You might want to paraphrase parts of it, okay? So here we go. Song of Solomon, uh, verse 1. How beautiful are your feet in sandals, O prince's daughter! The curves of your hips are like jewels, the work of the hands of an artist. Your navel is like a round goblet which never lacks mixed wine. Your belly is like a heap of wheat fenced about with lilies. Your two breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle. Your neck is like a tower of ivory. Your eyes like the pools in Heshbon by the gate of Bath-Rabim. Your nose is like the tower of Lebanon which faces towards Damascus. Your head crowns you like caramel and the flowing locks of your head are like purple threads. The king is captivated by your tresses. How beautiful and how delightful you are, my love, with all your charms. Your stature is like a palm tree and your breasts are like its clusters. I said, I will climb the palm tree. I will take hold of its fruit stalks. Oh, may your breasts be like clusters of the vine and the fragrance of your breath like apples and your mouth like the best wine. God bless the public reading of his word." Man, that's powerful But in it are great communication principles, right? Um, for example How beautiful are your feet and sandals, O prince's daughter Now you might think, okay, we just settled it, right? Um, prince's daughter, right? She's royalty No, not so quick The Hebrew for that more speaks about the nobility of character than anything else It's not saying that she's royalty, it's saying he treats her as royalty. Sandals were very sexy in the ancient culture, showing the top of your foot. So notice what he's commenting on. I do think you're sexy, but your nobility is what I'm also commenting on. If you're single, you want both. You want a person you're attracted to, both physically and their nobility. Uh, The curves of your hips are like jewels, the work of the hands of an artist. Now we've already seen in the synthetic world that images are the work of an artist. So to say to your significant other, you have been crafted by God. Psalm 139, we won't turn to it. It basically says all of you have been woven together, both your personality and your frame by God. So if you have a problem with the fundamental frame of your body, you need to take that up with God. But So we can say to our spouses, you have been crafted by God who's a great artist. Your navel is like a round goblet which never lacks mixed wine. I won't go into details. Um, that is not um, her navel. Uh, her belly is like a heap of wheat... Fenced about with lilies. What part of her stomach he's talking about is the lower abdomen where life is conceived for the fetus. A very pro-life passage. He says, when I look at your stomach, I look at something that will be life-producing. You'll produce our children, and I find it incredibly attractive. Your neck is like a tower of ivory. Very interesting. Tower of ivory would be pale in comparison. Twice he's commented on the jewelry that covers her neck, One is in chapter 1 verse 10, your cheeks are beautiful with earrings, your neck with strings of jewels, and in chapter 4 he compares it to a tower that's been shielded by King David's shields. This time, though, he doesn't comment on the jewelry, he comments on her naked neck and finds that attractive. What's the principle here? The most disarming thing about marriage is you see each other with no illusions. Uh, Clothes, we often wear clothes that hide things or flatter us. Marriage is this really awkward moment where you stand in front of each other and there is nothing, right? And at that moment, women can feel particularly vulnerable. Why? Because they understand I don't match up to synthetic reality. So for him to say, your neck, totally unadorned, I find beautiful is incredibly important. What life-affirming words to look at a woman with no clothes, no jewelry, and to say, I find you beautiful. Not what you wear. I've already commented on that. But I find your body without any clothes to be absolutely beautiful. Your nose is like the Tower of Lebanon. Uh, There is a Tower of Lebanon. It was 10,000 feet high. I think he simply liked a big nose. The king is captivated by your tresses. What does that mean? It means you captivate me. What did Job say in chapter 31? I've made a covenant with my eyes... that I will not look at other people. So men, when you get married, guess what? Your wife is the one that captivates you. And the more you fill your mind... with synthetic reality, i.e. porn it'll be hard for you to be captivated by a woman who does not match up to unreality. But to be captivated by her, to look at her and to say that she's beautiful, of course that's arousing, right? I will climb the tree and take hold of the fruit stalks. Now I want to make one quick point, bring my wife up. When you read this passage, I want you to notice what's not there is the most important thing about the passage. In the passage, he compares her to... um, Uh, Tower of Lebanon, ivory, mixed wine, wheat, jewels. What doesn't he compare her to? Another woman. He never does. He never looks at her and compares her to anybody. Right? So when we are in love with a woman, she is the standard of beauty for me. She is, not culture, I look at her. And by the way, we publicly say that, right? And then when the kids were young, Noreen would come down and I'd say to the boys, oh man, look at mom. Hubba, hubba. Noreen, you look hot, right? Stay away from the frozen foods. Yo! You know what I mean? (laughs) I think it's important for my kids to hear that, that I'm attracted to Noreen. So the most important thing about this guy is he gets the power of words. He understands I'm breathing life into this woman who has been burnt by the sun and feels her self-esteem is really low. And eventually, he builds that self-esteem up by specifically using the power of words to counteract culture and to make her feel beautiful. Eventually, you get the spouse you deserve. Why? You create them. Now, from a female perspective, I'm going to bring my wife up, Noreen, who I'm sure right now is really wishing... Yeah, awesome. (laughs) And I'm sure she's wishing right now she would have married the accountant. I'm sure. <laughs> but um, hey. Thanks, right. <laughs> um
1: Yeah, so what we want to talk about too is let's take like a look at the female perspective. Um, What's so unusual, now it wasn't unusual in this Near Eastern um, literature to have a male perspective of the female body and to have that be very detailed. But what was unusual to have the female's perspective of the male. In fact, there were only a few instances that they have found where it is the female voice speaking in this type of literature. But usually it's pointing out a man's um, achievements and his um, maybe his ability as a warrior or some kind of a leader, not necessarily focusing on his body. So the passage we're going to look at is the bride's version um, about sort of as she goes through head to toe, her perspective of the man's body. So we're going to look at Song of Solomon, chapter 5, starting in verse 10. Here we go. She says, My beloved is dazzling and ruddy, outstanding among ten thousand. His head is like gold, pure gold. His locks are like clusters of dates and black as a raven. His eyes are like doves beside streams of water bathed in milk and reposed in their setting. His cheeks are like a bed of balsam, banks of sweet, scented herbs. His lips are lilies dripping with liquid myrrh. His hands are rods of gold set with beryl. His abdomen is carved ivory inlaid with sapphires. His legs are pillars of alabaster set on pedestals of pure gold. His appearance is like Lebanon, choice as the cedars. His mouth is full of sweetness and he is wholly desirable. This is my beloved and this is my friend, O daughter of Jerusalem. Now if you were here a couple of weeks ago, you heard Mike talk about um, foxes sort of issues that we can have in marriage. And he talked, just prior to this in the passage, he talked about in Song of Solomon 5, where the man comes to the woman's door and knocks. And she says to him, basically, not now. Remember, he's like, oh, I've, I've already taken off my robe. I've washed my feet. I'm not sure I want to get up. And then what happens is she decides she is going to go and meet her lover. She goes to the door and he's gone already because he's been rejected. And so... When a man is rejected, he is going to leave. So her lover has left, and now she's distraught. She's discouraged. She goes out into the village looking for him. It doesn't go well. She doesn't find him, and she comes back. And remember the third voice in Song of Solomon is the they, or the daughters of Jerusalem. So she says to the daughters of Jerusalem, help me. I need to find him. And I love what the daughters of Jerusalem say back to her right before um, In Song of Solomon 5, verse 9, they say back to her, What kind of beloved is your beloved, O most beautiful among women? What kind of beloved is your beloved, that thus you adjure us? So basically they're saying, what is so great about this guy that we should help you find him? Her response is what I just read to you. She's like, well, listen to this. And she goes through point by point. She says, my beloved is dazzling and ruddy. And dazzling there, the Hebrew word means one that has um, great light or even reflecting heat, like maybe a statue that has been baking in the sun and is radiant and is reflecting heat. And it's kind of her way of saying, you know what, he's, he's really hot. I like this guy. Ruddy, just maybe his complexion. Um, but what I love what she says next, and that is, she goes on to say, he is outstanding among Ten thousand, And what she's saying there is it doesn't matter how many men there are. I only have eyes for him. There is no comparison. She's making a superlative. There is no one else that I want to see or be with but this man. Then she goes on to say that his head is gold, pure gold, his locks are clusters of dates. And she just describes various aspects of his body, head to toe. And you don't have to know necessarily what hands of gold and set with barrel and abdomens carved in ivory, what specifically that means, but you get the sense that she is really enamored with his majesty, that there is something about him that is So incredibly wonderful that she wants these daughters of Jerusalem to understand why she is desperate to find him. She does go on to say that his appearance is like Lebanon, choice as the cedars. Well, Lebanon would have been the highest mountain range that she could see and was known for its majesty. It's also something that the daughters of Jerusalem would have understood. So when she makes that comparison that he is... um, His appearances like Lebanon, choice as the cedars, they got it. They understood what that meant. And can you imagine what it would be like if we were to say to our spouses, our significant others, if we were to compare them to the most beautiful and majestic place that we had ever seen and how life-giving that would be for them? Now, I love what she says toward the end too, because she goes on to say... um, Okay, his mouth is full of sweetness and he is wholly desirable. Now his mouth being full of sweetness, it's kind of 50-50 as far as what the commentators think that she meant by that. Whether it is his mouth being his speech, the very things that he says, and we know that he says wonderful things to her. Or is she once again referring to his kisses? And either way, it's kind of a no loose situation there. Um, And then where she closes, she says, this is my beloved And my friend, O daughters of Jerusalem. She points out that her attraction to him is not just a physical attraction, she calls him her friend. And what Tim was talking about, that it's holistic. It's about friendship. It's about commitment. It's about companionship. It's not just that he's this great-looking guy head to toe, but that he is her friend. And I think a little bit, she might have had some attitude when she said to them, you know, this is my friend, O daughters of Jerusalem. In other words, that's why you need to help me find this guy. Do you get it? And don't stop reading just because it's the end of the chapter, because if you go on to chapter 6— um, this is the daughter's response then. They've now listened to her talk about why they need to help her find them. And then they say back to her, where has your beloved gone, O most beautiful among women? Where has your beloved turned that we may seek him with you? They got it, right? They understood what she was saying and how special this person was to her. And now they're saying, we get it, we're going to help you find him. You know, several years ago, um, a marriage counselor pointed out that how a couple speaks about each other in public is a good litmus test for how their relationship is in general. And I think, you know, that's probably pretty obvious. But what I love is that God knew the power of words spoken both privately and publicly long before anybody did any research on it. And it was so important that he chose to record it in his word so we would be able to understand the same thing. So Tim is going to close us up and then I think we're going to get a time for Q&A. Stay up there. Okay. Yes,
0: stay up there. All right. (laughs) Um, Hey, two quick observations, and we'll take Q&A. One, the Bible often gets a rap that it's oppressive towards women. Mm -hmm. Um, This book was written 3,000 years ago in a time when women didn't, they shouldn't really think about sex, nor should they publicly talk about it. And this book is from her perspective. If you added up all the dialogue, 53% of all the dialogue is hers. He clocks in at 36%. And then the daughters of Jerusalem and other things clock in, make up the rest. So here's a very forward book saying a woman has every right to be interested in sex and a woman has a voice culturally. Mm -hmm. So I love that. Uh, Just to comment on what you said about saying things to each other. John Gottman is a marriage counselor we really like a lot. Mike actually mentioned him a couple weeks ago. Gottman said, here's the key to marriage if you want to know what it is. It's a five to one ratio. The key to marriage. Five positive interactions for every one negative interaction. And Gottman's research has been based on thousands and thousands of couples. So five positive interactions for every one negative interaction. Now some of us might look at that and say, really, five? I would think that two to one is great, right? I'm doing twice as many positives as negatives. Three would be divine. He's saying, no, 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 five positive interactions. And we already talked about one negative interaction when she wasn't ready for him when he came. Right. right, So think about what they're doing. When you read this, just rack up the positives that they're saying to each other. We call that a positive communication spiral. So there are times when Noreen and I aren't doing well and we're snipping at each other and stuff like that. But there are other times in which we're complimenting each other and it tends to roll. Mm -hmm. It tends to gain a momentum of itself. So the proverb is right to say life and death is in the power of the tongue and we can speak life into each other um, by by simply even complimenting each other. And uh, so before we came here, we had one of our sons pray for us. And I just said, I made sure to say in front of our son, I said, man, mom looks great. And and she does. I really do believe Noreen looks great. And so that kind of stuff, it would seem like it's a small thing, but research shows that that kind of positive attentiveness to each other really can put a positive momentum uh, in your marital relationship and even in your parenting or things like that. Anything you would add? That sounds great to me. Okay. I just want to say in front of everybody, your belly is like a heap of wheat. Thanks, honey. <laughs> I wish you would update that. Yeah, you might want to paraphrase. Yep. You might want to update that and, hey, let's take some questions. All okay. Right. Do we have a question? Okay. You mentioned parents might want to have the talk with their kids around 7 and 8 so that they're not shaped by culture. What content is age-appropriate for a child that young?
1: That um, We actually even used a resource that Family Life uh, provided, and it starts with a book called The Story of Me. And so at the very beginning, what you're doing is you're just talking about that God made male and female. So what does that mean? What are body parts? What does it mean to be a boy? What does it mean to be a girl? How are we different? So that's really just the very beginning that you're going to start with, even at, I would say, from age you know four to six, seven, eight, and then you can begin to talk about how those difference are, differences are played out. Um, I can't remember exactly, I think it's probably by age 11, mm. you're talking a little bit more specifics about yeah. sex, about <clears throat> the actual sex act.
0: Research from Stanley Jones, who's the provost at Wheaton in this area would say you want to be ahead not Mm -hmm. behind when it comes to sexuality. You don't want to um, be responding to culture, you want to actually be ahead of culture. So that's why I think Dennis Rainey would say, yeah, right around age six or seven, you want to start. These concepts shouldn't be brand new concepts. Mm -hmm. Because I don't care if your kids are homeschooled, sent to a private Christian institution, private high school. Culture is getting to them. And I would make the argument that all your kids are getting the sex talk right Right. now. They're getting it. The only question is, are they going to get it from you or are they going to get it from culture? You can't keep it from them.
1: I was going to say, and the other misnomer is that the sex talk is a talk. Yeah. Like that at one point you sit down and you go through A to Z, everything there has to do and what that does is it freaks out your kids, it freaks out the parents because yeah. there's just way too much pressure. <laughs> um, what the sex talk is, is a series of talks and it's mm-hmm. using day-to-day life. It's using when you're watching a television show yeah. and something comes on that's maybe a little bit questionable that you use that as a catalyst to talk about, you know, what did you hear? What did you think? Do you think that's really a healthy way? Or, you know, the Big Bang Theory. Like, what does that mean? And talking through things like that and using life and day-to-day life as the sex talk. And
0: I'll pause the TV. I'll pause it. The kids hate it. And and don't think our kids are like, yeah, thank you so much that you will... (laughs) you will draw spiritual applications yeah. from the Big Bang? They're like, Dad, Dad. Really? But but I think it's important to do that. And please have a plan when you when the first time you bring it up. I didn't have a plan. I uh, my sex talk, the first one ended with, "Let's go to Chuck E. Cheese." I mean, it was <laughs> it, it was didn't go not well. good. It was not good.
1: <laughs> All right, another question. Should husbands' wives always be blamed if their their spouse Mm. lacks self-esteem? My husband tells me I'm beautiful all the time, and I know he really believes that. So why do I still lack self-esteem?
0: That reminds me of uh, the four conditions for self-esteem to be changed. Do you remember that?
1: I don't remember it offhand. I will say, the husband can't be held 100% responsible. Um, He certainly can build into it, and he can tear it down. But there are so many other factors that go into what builds your self-esteem. Um, It's great that your husband does that. That's so commendable. And the fact that you know that he believes that is huge. But there are other issues that go into what builds your self-esteem. Were you going to…
0: Yeah. here are four conditions psychologists tell us. So you're going to listen to some voice. Some voice is going to establish your self-esteem. The question is, who do you allow to have the most voice in your life? Here are four conditions by which we judge these voices. Number one you must deem the person competent that's speaking into your life. Um, You must give that person authority to speak into your life. Second, it must be highly personal. In other words, I just can't say all Biola wives are fairly attractive women that are sharp. Noreen wouldn't receive that because she's one of many. So it has to be highly specific. Number three, it must be consistent and numerous. It can't just be a one-time You look great. I think you're beautiful. I think you're smart. The last one is what this question is getting at. And we call this cognitive conservatism, which means the self-esteem that you adopt and if it really takes root is really hard to change. So the fourth one is uh, it must be reasonable in light of what you already believe about yourself. Right? So, afterwards, if you come up to us and say, I really enjoyed your talk, I think we'd receive that. If you walked up to us and said, that was the best talk I've ever heard in my life, I think we'd discount that because we, we would just say, I don't think it was that great. Okay? So, what this woman might be stuck in, even though she has a husband she views competent... He does compliment her regularly, and it's personal, is that it may be so rooted, your self-esteem, low self-esteem, that you are discounting what you believe to be uh, true about yourself. You're not attractive, even though he may say you're attractive every single day. That then becomes a spiritual issue, and you may need to get counseling because you might be so stuck in a negative self-esteem that you need input. And I don't doubt that that's spiritual battle as well, Mm -hmm. and giving culture way too powerful a say in your life. But the question would be, who has the most authority to speak into your life? Mm -hmm. Yeah, next. You mentioned the power of affirming a woman's beauty. When I'm affirming my daughter, should I acknowledge other qualities Mm -hmm. other than her looks? Yes. Yes.
1: (laughs) Absolutely. In fact, that was one comment I was going to make because you had said how, you had said before we left, doesn't mom look great? He also talked to our son about me doing this and how, what a great opportunity it is. And, and so I don't want you to think that Tim only focuses on how I look and tries to build that up with the boys because it really is so much more about character than it is just about looks. So, you know, anything that has to do with that, that they're a loyal person, that they're kind, that they're compassionate, when you think of the fruit of the Spirit, you know, are they joyful, are they giving, all those things, those are the kind of characteristics that you want to build up. Song of Solomon does focus a lot on um, some of the physical aspects, but as you read through it, you'll see that it has to do also with the character and consistency in each other's lives. It's not just all about, you know, the package, the surface.
0: And sometimes I have to say to Noreen, Noreen, I have a mind, too. Yeah.
1: Yeah. No, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> a, a, a simple
0: point that research shows: men, if you have daughters, you're in a very precarious position. Mm-hmm. Uh, studies show that a, a father's. So I think men, you can absolutely compliment your daughter uh, physically, but I would not offer any suggestions on how for her to become more attractive. Mm-hmm. A, a, a father simply cannot comment on her daughter's weight, cannot comment negatively on her. Um, appearance, appearance because yeah. women do not know how to process that. Research shows that that tends to send them into a negative spiral of eating right. disorders and negative self-esteem. I think a, husband, a, a father purely encourages his daughter physically. Now, I'm not talking about academically and other things like that, character issues. But in today's culture, I think a father just affirms, and it's the job of the mom to gently come across and maybe talk about physical issues, but a a dad in today's climate it it gets misinterpreted so quickly that Mm -hmm. I think as a dad we'd want to stay away from commenting on our daughter's physical appearance in a negative way.
1: But both parents can speak life into any child, whether yeah. it's a daughter or a son, but especially the daughters because they're so beaten down by, you know, some of the things Tim was talking about yeah. tonight, the, the physical um, standard that's just unachievable. But to be able to speak life and when you see characteristics in your children, to be able to see, to say, you know, you really are so gifted in, and then fill in the blank, whatever they're gifted in. Maybe they're a gifted musician, gifted athlete, they're very intelligent, they're good in math, They're good in science. And then kind of give them a vision for how God might be able to use that. To say, you know what, you are so compassionate. I can really see God using you in his kingdom to love on people that need to be loved. And you can sort of cast a vision for them as you focus on their strengths of how those might be able to be used for them.
0: And let me tag off that for a second. A weird thing happens in marriage. When you you get married and have kids, we just intuitively know we affirm our kids. Affirm, Mm -hmm. affirm, affirm, affirm. For example, your child comes home and draws a picture of a horsey and and gives it to you, right? You look at this horsey and it looks like a mutant horsey, right? This thing does not look like a horsey. What do you say to your child? Great job. That is awesome. You traced this. I did not trace this. No, you, hey, can I have this and take it to my office? And yeah, dad, you can, okay. We know to do that. For some weird reason in marriage, it just sort of stops, right? Your spouse does something in the house, right? Finally does something that you wanted him or her to do. And you look at him and go, that's a horsey? That's a horsey? And I think after a while, we really stop complimenting each other. John Gottman says the first thing to die in a marriage is politeness, Mm -hmm. And so we stop. Um, would you do your whack-a-mole thing? Would you do that real quick? Sure. whack mole Ill- Okay. Noreen has a great whack-a-mole illustration that I think is really good for us to hear both in parenting and marriage.
1: Yeah. It's What can happen in marriage? If you're familiar, if you ever go to like Chuck E. Cheese, Chauvin's Pizza, there's a game called whack-a-mole. And what it is is this surface. it usually has about six round holes and a padded club. And you put the token in, and then randomly from these holes, a mole will pop up its head. The goal is that you whack the mole on the head, so whack a mole, with the club before it can retreat. So you've got this mole and it's kind of popping its head up all over and you're trying to hit it before it goes back down. And I think that sometimes that's how our husbands can feel in marriage, maybe our kids can feel when they take the initiative and they try something new. And if we're that critical person that's there ready to meet them with the club and we just kind of bop them back down, you know, and we say, oh, you know, that's not the way I would have done it or, you know, is that the best job you could do? And what happens is, you know, that mole, that mole keeps popping his head up. You keep plugging in the tokens, the mole's gonna pop his head up. But our husbands and our kids, they'll stop taking the initiative if every time they pop their head up with something new or give something a try, they're met with this club of criticism or critique.
0: And if you have teenagers, welcome to whack-a-mole, right? No, 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 you know. Okay, another question. <clears throat> we can all see how the objectification of women in pornography impacts men's expectations of sex, however. Yes. Do you feel that romantic films set up unrealistic expectations of men for women acting as emotional porn? Absolutely, and the research shows this. The University of London did a study of the United States taking for a 10-year period romantic comedies. It was was everything, just imagine every Julia Roberts movie you can think of. Um, But all the romantic comedies did a thematic analysis of these movies and said it is incredibly damaged to Americans' view of romance. Uh, Thinking that my spouse could meet all my emotional needs, that there was something called a soulmate, That we had, we put way too much. Americans put way too much pressure on romantic love, Mm -hmm. so absolutely watching movies like The Notebook um, Mm -hmm. gives you this weird idea of what love is supposed to be like, and I think it puts way too much pressure on on uh, love. It it romanticizes it way too much.
1: And that sexual love or romantic love. One of the things that that study showed as well was that romantic love or sexual love in these movies, it overcomes all kinds of obstacles. Absolutely unrealistic obstacles, but somehow that is the band-aid that is going to fix it all and be the answer. And so people get into marriage and they hit a few bumps and they have this expectation that's kind of been ingrained from watching these movies that it's just gonna go away, that you know we're gonna have sex, we're gonna be romantic, and all those problems are just gonna be wiped away. And that doesn't happen. And so it can be as damaging and misleading as porn can be for men.
0: Uh, One psychologist said in her research that it takes a couple an average of 10 years to find a rhythm of the marriage. 10 years. Average divorce rate in the United States, 3 to 4 years. If a couple is going to get divorced, they're calling it quits. 3 to 4 years. I think romantic movies give us this accelerated idea of how quickly you can address problems and remove problems from your marriage. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you, you need to be in it for the long haul to, uh, to understand the rhythm of your marriage.
1: Yeah. That was a great question
0: though. What are the social verbal prerequisites in a marriage to have a great sex life?
1: Huh? Social verbal, oops, can we leave that up just for a second? I need to ponder social, there.
0: Social
1: verbal. <laughs> the social and verbal prerequisites in marriage to a great sex life. Um, Well, you know, going back to the idea that it is holistic, and, you know, I think it's true both for men and women, I'm going to speak from the woman's perspective, that it is holistic in that our friendship, our companionship, our compatibility, um, our time together, all those things are ingredients that will lead to a healthy and vibrant sex life. Um, it can't just be one aspect. That's not strong enough to sustain it. And so when I think of some of the verbal prerequisites, it would have to be things that encourage our friendship, our relationship, that are, and things that are never demeaning toward me. Yeah. Um, because if there is any, any sense of conflict or tension in our marriage, the last thing
0: I'm interested in Sex. See, this is the problem. Yes. This, uh, now this is the, this is the problem. Wow, you said that very forcefully, yeah. by the way. And I think you're probably didn't aware you did, of that. It's didn't not a did secret. Did you communication to pick up? <laughs> um, no. So, so here's the problem, men. We have been conditioned to focus on one aspect. We've been conditioned to focus on the physical, right? So, I would say with Noreen and I. Now, if we were in a full-blown argument, I would not be that sensitive. But if Noreen and I were, if there was like a myth between us, I still could say to Noreen. Yes. If there was still, you know, I could still say, hey, tonight, how would you like to? And your response would be? Absolutely not. Yeah. And I can't
1: believe you even asked. I think that would be even my response was like, are you yeah. kidding me? Are you so I'm out of touch? Me, yeah,
0: I'm just. <laughs>
1: <laughs> but I would almost be insulted. That he would think that was an option because it is that holistic. It, it, yeah. it is so much bigger than just the act. It has everything to do with the relationship.
0: And men, are, it, men, it can be just physical. And women can feel used. They can feel like you're just, you know, a valve to release things and stuff like that. Yeah. Yep.
1: Do we have maybe we have one, one more? more.
0: My future in-laws continually degrade my fiancé and sometimes it seems like my affirmations can't possibly outweigh their words. Is there a way for me to set limits with them or is there anything I can do to affirm him more? Wow. Wow. Okay. Uh, Yeah, I would say, boy, it's going to come down to who you give more weight to, right? Um, again, your self-esteem is being primarily spoken into by what voice? So fundamentally, is my fiancé more important than my future in-laws? Second, I think the the, uh, individual needs to stick up for your fiancé. Absolutely. I I think you need to set borders, boundaries, and basically say to your parents, you can't speak to my fiancé that way. I I, I just won't allow it. I, I think you'd have to be... Her defender or his defender yes, yeah. in front of her parents, right?
1: Absolutely. I, I to say to to the parents, I'm not going to give you access to my fiance to hurt him in that way, um, and the parents need to understand and. You know, I I can imagine if you're a parent who's got a daughter marrying somebody that you're not so fond of, and obviously not fond enough that you're speaking out about them regularly um, in front of, and this sounds like from this question, if I understood it correctly, what? Say that again. Okay, let's put it back up. I'm sorry. My future in-laws, oh, 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 his own parents degrade, thank you, thank you. His own parents degrade him. And they cannot, yes, is there a way to set limits with them or is there anything I could do to affirm him more? I wouldn't change
0: anything about your answer. To me, it does not matter. Well, except
1: that it is harder for, if I'm a woman and my, in other words, let's say it was you, and your parents are degrading you, it would be hard for me as your fiance to go to your parents and say, knock it off. What you're doing is inappropriate.
0: But I still would do that.
1: But you can still set some, (laughs) you would. But you can still set some boundaries. And I think this goes back to the question too about what builds self-esteem. And there's an issue of um, having for the fiancé to be able to separate himself from these negative messages, including limiting exposure to those negative messages himself. And so as the fiancé, I think you can go to this man and say, you know, we need to limit the amount of exposure because they are... It's so degrading and it's inappropriate. So I think you can help in that way. You can help by building him back up. And you can also help in, um, in having him be able to separate from those messages of what's true and what's not true. But that's, there's so much going on there. Yeah. And that is so deep. Because if you're, if you're witnessing it, I think you could be pretty sure that this is what he has grown up in. Like, this is not a new message. This didn't just start happening recently. So this is a message that he has heard probably his entire life. And it's going to take a long time to unpack that and move past that. Um, it's It's going to take a lot of time, a lot of prayer, maybe some counseling, some outside help. Um, I I love that you're aware of that and interested in moving forward. um, But it's probably going to take more than just your affirmations to overcome years of degrading messages from his parents. Thank you for catching that.
0: My wife and I want to spice up our love life. Obviously, we won't take cues from Hollywood or pornography. But what are some biblically acceptable ways to enjoy this aspect of our relationship? Uh, I think sometimes we just get in ruts. We don't get good input. So there are actually a lot of great books out Mm -hmm. today. One is called Sheet Music, uh, that just gives, again, acceptable ideas to spice up the relationship. Uh, Within a marriage. Within a marriage. What would be some other ones? Um,
1: Love Life by Ed Wheat. Oh,
0: Love Life by Ed Wheat. And some of them, are, you know, you, you open them up and, and it's like you read a couple and you're like, I would never do that in a million years. And some of them you go, wow. And your wife goes, I, I would never, never do, do that,
1: that <laughs> in a million years. <laughs> in a years. Yeah. Um, so it has to be mutually agreeable. Um, there's other things like there's a, a resource called... Um, Simply romantic nights, oh, yeah, yeah. and really all that is, they have a whole group of cards for men and a whole group of cards for women. I have one right here. You do not. I do not. I do not. I, it, it wouldn't surprise me, but you but you just, you pick, and you hand that to your spouse, and it's just an idea, it's a creative idea for a romantic date, and some of them might be a little more provocative than others, and again, it has to be something that you both are comfortable with and agree on. But those kind of things can just help give you new ideas of what are some things that we can do. They might be ideas for dates or for getaways or for books to read. But um, yeah, so Simply Romantic uh, Nights is another one. And then there's a bunch of little date books, like 50
0: Ideas for Dates with Your Mate.
1: Those kind of things can be great just to give you some ideas, some things that you haven't thought of before. You just have to
0: sign off. Both of you have to sign off. You can't feel pressured into it. We have some really good friends of ours. They're both super, super conservative. He's a pastor. I know what you're going to say. This share. was pre-9/11. <laughs> um, he was gone for an extended period of time. She picks him up at check at a baggage check. It's like midnight. She's wearing an overcoat, a, a trench coat, and he's just standing there. And she has nothing on underneath. And she's just standing there. He's a pastor, so nobody's around. And she just kind of they're just looking at each other. And she just goes. Our friend, he said, I just grabbed a bag. I just grabbed one. Black, that's mine. Take it away. me. Whoop. So we, talk, we, we heard that story, and Oren's first response was?
1: Not happening. <laughs> <laughs> Good for them, but, yeah, not working for me.
0: Kohl's has a great return policy, too. <laughs> they- <laughs> How about one more question and then maybe... Well, I didn't mean it that way. I meant a trench coat. Clean it up. I meant a trench coat. I have no idea what you meant. I meant a trench coat. Before God, I will a trench coat. I'm (sighs) keenly aware of not measuring up to that synthetic reality. How can I learn to accept what I have and be more open to my husband? Wow. Well, we need to be reprogrammed by many different voices. One, certainly scripturally. Mm -hmm. You need to open yourself up to the truth of the scriptures, which again, Psalm 139 means God basically crafted your frame. Now, does that mean we we could get in shape and whatever? Sure. But fundamentally, your body type was set by God. Mm -hmm. So to realize the fact that you were created by God, that you're a daughter of God, a son of God... Um, allow the scripture to say your physicality is not the most important thing about you, and then to hear what your spouse is trying to say to you. Um, But that's going to be a spiritual process of a spiritual discipline Mm -hmm. where I think this is going to be a long haul to overcome your self-esteem as currently constructed.
1: Yeah, because, you know, because we've looked at um, Romans 12 where it talks about the renewing of our mind, and that is done through Scripture and through repetition, but I also think we've talked about the power of words and the power of the spoken word, and that includes the the words that we say about ourselves, and there's something about saying something out loud and hearing it that makes it all the more powerful, and those can be negative messages or positive messages. Mm. So, you know, you might not walk around the house going, I am great, I am wonderful, but avoid saying the negative things because I don't know, sometimes you do something, you go, that was so stupid. Why am I so stupid? Why do I keep doing that? Or why can't I eat better? Why can't I lose weight? Why can't I be a, a size zero? And those kind of messages, especially as we speak them out loud and we hear them, they have a lasting impact. And so having that discipline of even holding your own tongue against yourself, and not reinforcing those negative messages um, can be powerful.
0: And again, humor can be devastating. So there are certain things we never kid each other about. Mm-hmm. Body types, we never, we never go in that direction, ever. I, I only affirm, Noreen, and I've done it, tried to do it consistently. But you never joke in that direction with your spouse. Right. You just, that, that's very devastating. How about like one more? One, two, one, one, two more? Sure,
1: do have to, one more, and then we press it.
0: At what point in a dating ah. relationship do you start to talk about sex? We are, we are doing a talk in chapel next semester on escalators. Yeah. Things that escalate a relationship forward. Um,
1: you know, obviously this is talking about a, you know, a dating relationship, and so pretty much the only discussion I think you need to have about sex in a dating relationship is that it's off limits. And so it really wouldn't be until you start to, because you're not talking about like if you have a sexual issue in your past when you talk about that, that's a whole nother story. But when you're engaged and, and getting ready to get married, then you can start having some discussions about sex. I'm not sure, unless I'm missing the point of that, I'm not sure I see any valid reason to, ha- having, to have any discussion about sex before then, except that it's, it's out of bounds at this point because we're not married.
0: We were, we were just counseling a couple at a marriage conference a couple of weeks ago where she was very sexually active and he wasn't. Um, and he was asking her for details. And I just counseled him. I said, that is very dangerous. Satan would love to play that trump card, right, of getting details. I think bare minimum all he needed to know was that she wasn't a virgin and, and she had admitted that. That's it. He does not need to know any more information about that until perhaps they're engaged, and then I would, I would just have to counsel him, why do you want to know this? And, and those images, you just have to be very careful to talk about sexual pasts with each other. Be very careful uh, to do that. It, it, I don't see much good that can come out of that. One last one? I thought that was our last oh, one. Oh, oh, that was it? Okay. Do <laughs> you want to do one more? What the heck, one more, here we go. <laughs> Oh, it's a long one. What?
1: Oh! (laughs) Oh, oh dear. Go ahead. Okay. My wife never initiates sex, and she even admits to me that she has no real desire for Mm. it. But she also admits she enjoys it when we have it. It seems to be connected to the angel expectations placed on us at church. It causes lots of tension in my marriage and makes me wonder why I am not wanted. What should we do? Okay, there's a lot in there. Um, the angel expectation is referring to, in case you weren't here, the first week, I'm assuming this is what they're talking about, where Mike talked about, you know, we're neither angels nor animals, and that angels are spiritual beings that have no sexual... Um, they're not sexual beings. They're angels. So I'm, I'm assuming that's what he's talking about so there. So let me
0: tackle the man's perspective. You hit the woman's perspective. Okay. And boy, we should have stopped.
1: I know, lunch. honey. I, <laughs>
0: Ladies... We, we know we shouldn't, we know we shouldn't, but we take it personally when you say no. In a married context, when a man initiates sex and a woman says no, like the Song of Solomon, we take it personally. We know we shouldn't. There are a ton of reasons why she said no. Tired, frazzled, um, physical issues, um, A multitude of issues. So ladies, just know, we know we shouldn't take it personally, but the default button we have is that we take it personally. You're not interested in me, and men have grown up that we are sexual beings. That's the cultural message that men get all the time. Do I please my wife? Am I desirable to my wife? So we men, we need to wrestle with that, right? Paul says, put the needs of others above your own needs. So there are times I just can't take it personally because Noreen is just fatigued or not feeling well or, or, or um, life, see, life is very stressful and I'm barging in and saying, hey, I'm in the mood and you should be too. And that, it just doesn't work that way because sex is not physical. It's emotional, spiritual, intellectual and all that. So men, we take it personally. Ladies just know, men t- tend to take that personally. Mm-hmm. Okay? and men we need not to take it as personally as what we do because we're buying into the cultural message that we are primarily a sexual being and that uh, we have all these grand illusions of what sex ought to be and even the frequency of it so what would you add to that? <laughs>
1: Well, there were a couple of good things that I would point out too, though, is that um, even though she doesn't initiate, she does respond. And I think it said that, the, the question said that she says that she enjoys sex when they do have it. So, so those are all good things and maybe good things that this man needs to remind himself and hold on to. Um, culturally, that has been our are the message that women have received is that sex is, it's not the right message but it's the message we receive. That it's about men, it's for men, men initiate and women respond. And so the fact that that pattern has been set is not surprising and therefore is another reason for men to not take it personally because this is a message that has been ingrained in most women our entire lives. So to kind of switch that up would, would really take a whole lot of effort so the fact that she responds is a good thing and hold on to that and celebrate that um i do think it's it's one of those ongoing negotiations in marriage um mike mentioned you know the two things that that cause conflict in marriage are sex and finances because they are power issues. And so it's just one of those ongoing conversations because of the way you're wired, because of the way she's wired. It doesn't mean that you, you can't get better at it and maybe that the conflict that results from it will become less frequent or maybe less intense, but it's how she is and it's how you are and those two things are going to probably come up against each other on a regular basis. So it's a discussion that you need to have in the marriage. And I would try to encourage women because it is so important and as your wife maybe understands how important it is for her to initiate occasionally and what that would mean to you that she might choose then also to step outside what comes naturally to her and do that because it is so important and so encouraging and such a valuable message to the husband, but it's going to be an ongoing conversation.
0: And the last thing is, by wired, we don't mean just wired by God. Mm -hmm. For Mm -hmm. sure, he does wire us, but culture also greatly wires us. So part of it is we have to realize how we've been wired by this cultural moment in the United States, which means we're sex crazed and sex is viewed very simplistically. Mm -hmm. Okay, hey, we want to pray for you um, tonight. And again, we'll have a prayer team here. To pray with you if you have any issues. Also in the prayer room. Prayer room. <laughs> prayer room. <laughs> <laughs> Directions. Yeah, prayer. Yeah, prayer room. <laughs> prayer room. Uh, you can meet if you want to be privately. And Noreen and I will stick around for a little bit to talk if you want to. Uh, but let me pray for you. Uh, and also pray for Mike. Um, when you do something this risky, uh, I think you're, you could be the target of spiritual attack. I mean, I, what Mike is doing in this church is really unprecedented. And so I don't doubt that there could be spiritual issues of opposition towards what Mike's trying to do, which is to get us talking about something we seldom ever talk about. Mm -hmm. So he's to be applauded and also to be prayed for so that he and his marriage would be protected. So let me pray for you guys. Father, we do pray for these individuals that are listening online as well as in this room. And Father, you know the context and the situation of every single person in this room. Every struggle, you know the people who send in questions and those who wanted to but didn't. Uh, Lord, we pray that you would meet us with grace, with love. Uh, Help us to affirm each other appropriately. Uh, Give us real wisdom and a a renewed appreciation of the power of the spoken word, that we would affirm each other, speak life as a congregation, life in our marriages to our kids, um, to our friends. So, Lord, give us a deep sense of conviction as we move forward. I pray for Mike, give him real wisdom as he takes a whole evening to answer.